Amen. I always get second time I've seen that. Actually, it's about the fourth time I've seen that video. So it gets old after a while. But I always get a little choked up when the daughter, I have a 16-year-old daughter, when the daughter is crying over the boyfriend that broke up with her through a text and the dad goes in and I get choked up which I don't even know why because I don't allow my 16 year old to date guys so it's totally removed but I'm still choked up by it anyways uh hey man so you're like what's your trick with teenagers keep them inside all right <laughs> Genesis chapter 29 it's great being a pastor and a daddy at the same time all those great sermons I get to preach to my daughters. Uh, Genesis 30, and I got to pick up this sermon where we left off. I'm actually, I didn't finish last week's sermon, so I promised I would finish it. And uh, I'm actually glad that I didn't finish it last week because we're talking about God, our Father, His discipline in our life. I mean, how perfect is that for Father's Day? Our Heavenly Father is a disciplining God. And that is a great thing. So I'm going to pray and uh, ask that uh, God give us Open hearts and minds for this. God, you are an awesome God. You are a Father in heaven, and your name is hallowed. It's set apart. There is no one like you. You are the judge of the universe, the creator of all things, and yet you've decided to be a loving and involved, a relational God with us, your people. And we thank you that we get to be adopted into your family through Jesus as sons and daughters, and that you are a God that is leading us and shepherding us in our life. I pray that this moment in in the word would be not about the messenger, but about the message. That it wouldn't be about uh, the eloquence or the lack thereof of words spoken by a man, but it would be about a power of your spirit to apply your word to our hearts. That you would move uh, in our life in real ways that, that meet us where we're at and that take us where you're taking us. And so, God, be our Heavenly Father today, leading us through your Son, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, a critical dimension of God's love is his discipline. This is a critical dimension of how God leads us. We talked about last week that God wants human beings to flourish. God wants... Men to be what he created men to be, and women to be what he meant women to be. He wants us to flourish, but one of the ways, it's not the only way that he gets us to flourish, but one of the ways is through disciplining us as our Heavenly Father. In fact, listen to this from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 through 12. It says here, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. That is good news, amen? It is good. And, and what we are trying to do, if we want to leave a legacy that glorifies God, if we want to leave a mark in this world that is different and uncommon than other marks that are left by human beings, we cannot despise the Lord's discipline. I've been reading a lot through the book of Proverbs lately. I've been wanting to grow in wisdom, and, and so I've been kind of absorbing the book of Proverbs. It's a great, obviously, a great book, but another one of my favorite verses on discipline and being rebuked and being reproved and being trained and, and tough love. Everybody say tough love. That's what we're talking about today, isn't it? God's tough love in our life. And one of, the, one of the verses that comes to mind is Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1. This is a great verse from the Bible. You put this on the fridge. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. I just got called dumb by the Bible, right? And it's one of those things. But, you know, when, when you read a verse like that and you go, man, like, like the Bible just said that people who despise reproof and rebuke and discipline and, and tough love, if you despise tough love, the Bible says you're stupid. But you see, there's grace even in that strong word from Proverbs. And here's where the grace is. The grace is, is that God comes to us and says, there is nothing wrong with falling down. In fact, we live in a fallen world and you and I are going to make mistakes. We are going to sin. We are going to fall short of God's glory. 
We, we are going to say things we shouldn't. We're going to think things we shouldn't. We're going to see things we should not see. And God says that your legacy that glorifies him does not come down to you being a perfect person. Your legacy comes down to how you respond to failure in the presence of God. Your, your legacy comes down to can you receive correction when you're caught by God in the sin? Can you hear him say to you, you are wrong? In our culture, there's a couple of problems with this and the difficulties that we've got, hurdles that we've got to jump over when we think about this dimension of God's love, this tough love from God. The first is societal. And in society, the problem that we have is we've got a lot of broken homes and broken families and broken marriages and, and, and a lot of abuse out there. And so a lot of people have been victimized by those who, who have abused them. And the problem with that kind of victimization is it shuts us down to any kind of tough love. Because if we hear about tough love or, or, or somebody tries to practice lovingly tough love, we begin to interpret it through our, our experience of abuse. And so it's more and more difficult for the church and for God and, th- and for Scripture and truth to come to us and say, you're wrong, because the way we're going to encode that is, man, I'm being, I'm being abused, But what I want to say to you is that God's tough love is different than the tough love that abuses, amen? And that he wants to get us up, not push us down. He wants to move us forward, not pull us back. He wants to take us to a higher plane. And if we'll just be open to his tough love, then we can move beyond our victimization and we can become victors in Christ and through his love. Don't shut down to God's tough love, even if you've experienced horrible abuse. You know, Father's Day is a day when many people in our society are missing out on the idea of a good father. They didn't have a good father, or their father wasn't who he should be. And so I just want to say to you that our Heavenly Father is good and perfect in every way. And His love is good. And being adopted into his family is a great thing through Jesus Christ. You have a heavenly father, and he wants to love you to a different place. The second problem we have when we start talking about this dimension of God's tough love is we have a religious problem. And when religion comes and talks to us about a topic like this, typically the way discipline is played out in a religious, more legalistic way is it says, you just need to do better. You just need to get your act together. Right And discipline comes as like, are you going to get up or not? Are you just going to stand there and keep being defeated? The gospel difference in God's discipline is this. The gospel comes to us and says, you need to get up, but I am going to, as God, as your Savior through Christ, I'm going to give you the power and the resources to get up and to be a new person. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Amen. The old has passed away, the new has come. If anyone is in Christ, you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. God is a part of your life. And with the command, he gives you the power to walk in the commands that he wants you to walk in. Augustine, a great pastor from 4th century, really awesome. A lot of good sayings from him, really smart guy. And he said this, he said, God, command what you will, but will what you command. Many people believe that when Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount and the people were amazed at his authority, one of the things that they meant by his authority is not only did Jesus make all these commands, but with the command he gave a power to fulfill what he was calling his disciples to walk in. Isn't that good news? God is our helper. God comes and says, not only am I calling you to victory, I'm going to help you to victory. But it comes through tough love. As we've been walking through Genesis, we've come to the patriarch Jacob. And one of the things that we've realized as we look at this guy is we look at a guy who needs some tough love. Can I get an amen? I mean, this guy is so messed up. He's, his life is, is, is in a shambles. And he's in a bad place. And we've all been in a bad place before. 
And what God has had to do, and as we talked about last week, God has brought this dimension of his tough love. And let me review for you kind of a couple of things we talked about last week, and then I'll pick it up where we left off. But as review, we talked about God's love brings discipline through two things, all right? The first thing we talked about is God disciplines us with his love through consequences. Everybody say consequences. Through the shadow of providence... God allows Jacob to go through the school of hard knocks. Jacob has been sowing into the world as a deceiver, and he's going to reap what he sows by a man who deceives him. He had played his daddy. He had played his brother. He had tricked them, deceived them to get what he wanted. And then he met his match in his father-in-law, Laban, who is the player who plays the player. And Laban, God allows Jacob, even though he's the covenant partner and he's the favored one, and God loves Jacob, but he hates Laban. But even though he loves Jacob, he says, I love you too much not to let you see what it's like to be a deceiver, what it's like to be a manipulator. God ultimately makes Jacob take his own medicine. And some of the best stuff that's ever happened to me, oh my gosh, in my life has been when God just lets me deal and live with consequences. Those consequences are lessons, aren't they? I mess up, and I have to deal with the consequences. You know, as a Christian, what we believe is that Jesus died for our sins on the cross. We believe that he paid the full price, that when he died on the cross, he said, it is finished. And what we say as Christians is that Jesus took away the penalty of our sin. But Jesus doesn't always take away the consequences, does he? And those consequences are lessons. And Jacob is learning how life works. And, and he's learning that, that what it feels like to be tricked. Laban tricked him to marry the daughter he didn't even want. And then tricked him to work seven more years for him to get the daughter he did want. And now instead of one wife, he's got two wives, which is one too many. And he is now living in this place. I call it the place of consequences. And he's carrying this big load. And he's got these, these chains shackled on him. And it is all a bed he made that he has to sleep in. And God's like, I'm going to let you go through that. This American God that's being preached in American churches is a false God. This God that's being preached that says that God won't let you go through consequences. That all God is is the cosmic Coke machine. If you put your faith in him, you'll get exactly what you want. You'll have as much money as you want. You'll have health that you want. You'll be a champion every single day. Every day will be a Friday. What if we meet a God who says, you need a Monday? What if we meet a God who says, the best thing that you could do is go through a Tuesday? What if you met a God who said, I'm going to make hump day a bad day? Today is Father's Day, and the best stuff my dad did was tough love. He loved me well. He used to say to me, Joshua, I always knew I was in trouble when he did the fool Joshua name. You know, if I was, if I was in good with my dad, he'd call me Josh. If I was bad, as Joshua. And if it was really bad, it was Joshua Allen. My dad used to say to me, Joshua, you belong to God more than you belong to me. But the one thing God has let me know, the higher the mountain you climb, the further the fall, the more it's going to hurt. I don't want you to go through that. But if you need to go through that, I hope you do. One time I came home later than I was supposed to come home, and the doors were locked. I was locked out of my own house. And I had a two-story house, and I climbed up to the second story on the balcony. We lived in a much larger house than I live in now. And I snuck in through the balcony, and there was my mother. And my mother said, your father wants to speak to you. It's 2 in the morning. I said, oh, my goodness. And I walked into the room, and my dad, who, and, and, and I say this, my dad was never abusive, but he was tough. 
<laughs> and he grabbed me by the, by the shirt and he threw me into his closet. He came into the closet, he threw me out in the room and he said, what have you been doing? And I was like, I've been out. And he said, have you been smoking cigarettes? And I leaned like I had a black leather coat. That was really cool. I leaned forward like this, and I went, no. And as I said no, a pack of stoves fell on the floor. (laughs) He said, Joshua Allen. And I was like, Dad, I'm having a bad day. (laughs) And that's when he said, the further this mountain you go, the further the fall, the more it's going to hurt. There's only so much I can do. You're in God's hands. And God will not let you get away with this. And I suffered consequences, see. And some of us today, you're living with consequences, and that is not a bad thing. That is a good thing. And if you'll just listen and not harden your heart, if you'll let those consequences soften you so that you will surrender and give your life to God and go in a new route, let that discipline, let that tough love lead you down a new path. That is what Jacob needed in his life. And so consequences is one of the ways our loving God disciplines us. The second way we talked about is we talked about emptiness. And sometimes the greatest thing that God can do for us in training us and loving us is let us not be satisfied in a life that's less than what he meant for us. A life that we don't settle for. And we saw this in the story of the sisters of Leah and Rachel. Last week I called Leah, Leah, all the whole sermon. I think the Hebrew way is to say Leah, so if I confused you, sorry. Hebrew way, Leah is the name. And Leah and Rachel, remember last week how they were like, you know, they're, and it's like a cat fight with these two sisters competing for their husband's love. And so Leah keeps having babies. And the reason why she keeps having babies is so that maybe one day her husband will love her. She just wants fulfillment in love. She just wants this man to love her. And, of course, Rachel's the same way. She just wants a baby, and she's barren. And so she, they start competing, and then they both send in their servants to sleep with Jacob to have babies through their servants. I mean, it is disgustingly dysfunctional. And rare, rare. And you know what never happens? They never get fulfilled. Even when Rachel has Joseph... Even when she gets what she thought would bring her the most satisfaction, the most happiness in her life. If I only had, that's the thing we say in our head, isn't it? If I only had. And she finally gets Joseph. And yet she's still a woman who, as we're going to see later on in Genesis, she will steal the household gods. She will worship idols because she's never satisfied. And let me tell you guys something. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, my fellow human beings, you and I will never be satisfied outside of God's love. You can gain the whole world and lose your soul. You can have the greatest guy love you if you're a lady. If you're a guy, you can be the strongest, most masculine, most accomplished, most successful, and you will never be satisfied because there is a void in our heart that is God-shaped, and we won't be satisfied until he fills it. God's trying to tell Leah, I love you. That is enough. You don't have to keep having babies to try to earn this love. I've chosen you to be the matriarch, Leah. You don't need Jacob to love you more than Rachel. I love you. You're now related into the line that will ultimately produce the Savior of the world. I love you. In Christ, we are loved by God. And we talked about, I'll say it again. My daughters were in the first service. I love saying this over and over again. But, you know, listen. When we don't need a man anymore, that's when we're ready for a man. When we don't need money anymore, that's when we're ready to be good stewards. When we don't need people's applause or, or popularity or everybody to look at us and say, oh, what a wonderful person, that's when we become great servants. And the only way that happens is when our whole identity is shaped, our meaning, our sense of belonging, our sense of being in this world, our sense of purpose and mission is shaped and filled by the person and the presence of God through Jesus Christ. You and I, our emptiness is a loving discipline until we are satisfied in him. And God is glorified most in us when we're most satisfied in him. That's John Piper. So true. 
Emptiness is a great thing. And that's where we left it last week, which was really uncool for me to leave it there last week. Because consequences and emptiness is not enough to lead us and discipline us and train us in where God ultimately wants us to be. Consequences and emptiness can only get us so far in our growth and in our flourishing as human beings. We need something a little bit more. Everything's been happening in the shadows of providence, but now out of the shadow of providence, what's going to happen is Jacob is going to run into revelation. And this revelation is what's going to ultimately be the thing that's the game changer and turns him around in his life. And so we pick it up in Genesis chapter 30. In verse 30, and it talks about Jacob's prosperity. And what Jacob begins to realize is he says this. He says, man, I am in a bad place. I'm in bondage. I belong in the promised land. I've been a servant of this taskmaster Laban, this horrible homeowner, this bad landlord, and he's tricked me. And I'm being tricked, and I'm being played, and I'm being hustled in this world, and I'm in a bad place, and I need to get out of this place and get back to the promised land. So he goes to his father-in-law, Laban, and he says, Laban, brother, I've got to go. i got to cash in my chips. i got to get back to the promised land. This is a wilderness for me. I've got to go. And Laban realizes that Jacob has brought him much prosperity. Jacob has been good to the family business. Now, here's why Jacob's been good to the family business is because he's a patriarch. And God said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Everywhere you go, you're going to be, just be a blessing. And when you read Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, later on Joseph, you can throw them in a pit. You can throw them in the wilderness. Water's going to spring up out of the dry ground. Good prosperity is going to happen wherever they're at. Now, I don't see in this a prosperity gospel, but what I do see is a provisional gospel. What that means is that when we're in covenant with God through Jesus Christ, he provides for us even in the driest places. I can tell you, Sherry and I, man, in our life, I mean, since we've become Christians, we, we have always been provided for even when we were as poor as dust, right? And God just, like, brings, like, stuff out of nowhere because he provides. There's a provisional gospel. And Laban sees that Jacob is favored by God even though he doesn't deserve to be favored by God. Can I get an amen? Like all of us. And Laban doesn't want him to go because his cattle is growing, his things is growing. And so Laban is trying to work a deal to where Jacob won't go. He says, I'll pay you anything you want to stay. And Jacob's like, I don't want anything. i tell you what I will do. You give me your spotted animals, your speckled animals, and let me take them to pasture. And all the animals that are bred from those that are spotted and speckled, that I will take only that with me and I'm going. I'm out of here. And Laban thinks he's got him. And Laban, that slick salesman, slick hair, disgusting man, like a, like a car salesman. I used to sell cars. It tells you the... Anyways. <laughs> and Laban's like, okay, yeah, you, you go through my cattle. And you take all spotted speckle, and then anything that's bred out that's spotted and speckled, I'll give to you. But before he lets Jacob go to the cattle, he runs over, gets all the spotted speckle, sends them away, and says, here's my cattle. Pick out any spotted and speckle. And Jacob goes through, and there's no spotted and speckled animals. And so then Jacob has to go out to pasture with only white and black animals, and he's got to breed spotted and speckled animals if he wants a paycheck to take back to the promised land. If he wants money for the fuel that's going to get him back where he needs to go. So he takes out the animals, takes them out to pasture, and Jacob, he's still not perfect. Now, guess what? You and I are all in process. So he's making steps forward, but he's still not where he should be. And so what he does, let's pick it up in chapter 30 and verse 37. And let me read this for you, okay? And just be patient as we read through this passage. I'll explain it. It sounds really weird, but I'll I'll explain it. It took me a while to figure it out. Uh, It takes me... (laughs) Most of the time, it takes me a long time to figure things out. But verse 37, here's what it says. 
So he's got this, these animals, and it says, Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plain trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. And he set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks and in the troughs, that is, the watering places, where the flocks came to drink, and since they bred when they came to drink. And the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks bred forth striped, speckled, and spotted. Now, This was an ancient accepted practice. You take a stick, you rip it in half, and you lay it in front of the animals while they're breeding in front of the troughs. And the superstition was if you did this, then plain animals would produce spotted animals. You see, Jacob, he's still got a little, he's superstitious. He's He's trying to practice magic where he needs to just be spiritual and believe God. He thinks, as a result of this little stupid trick, that he gets this blessing. Skip down to uh, verse 43. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants, and male servants, and camels and donkeys. He flourishes. He gets a lot of spotted and speckled animals as a result of all of this. And so he's got a paycheck to take back against all the odds. He shouldn't have been able to get spotted and speckled, but he did. And he thought it's because he ripped open the sticks. We come to verse, uh, chapter 31. Look at verse 1. Laban is not happy. Laban thinks that Jacob has tricked him. Now, Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. They cannot believe how he has speckled animals. He must have stolen somehow in the night Laban's animals. And so they're upset, and Laban's upset, and Laban's like, I'm going to kill this guy. Right? Verse 2. Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Now, can I just stop right there? Let me just stop right there. Jacob, who cares what Laban thinks? Can I get an amen? Amen. Who cares what Laban thinks? This is Jacob's whole problem. He's way more concerned with what everybody else thinks of him. Oh, Laban. Laban doesn't like me anymore. Oh, no. Who cares what the slick salesman thinks or what the world thinks or what anybody thinks? You know what matters? It's what God thinks that matters. It's what God reveals that matters. Oh, Jacob, he just makes me mad. Well, he's going to get fixed. And what's going to fix him is a word from God. And you know what I need? Sometimes I just need God to show up and speak. Forget the consequences and emptiness. I just need God to speak into my life. And so verse 3, I love this. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return. You can hear God going, return to the land of your fathers and your kindred. And I, everybody say I. That stands for God. I will be with you. Jacob, what are you doing? I've given you what you need. you got gas for the road. You've got some new camels and Escalade. Go back and stop doing this. And you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the great story in John 5 when Jesus comes to the paralyzed guy. Do you all remember that? And Jesus comes by, and he looks at this guy who's been paralyzed for 38 years. He's just sitting there feeling sorry for himself, having a pity party. Because he's paralyzed. And Jesus looks at him and says, do you want to get well? And you know what that guy does? Well, everybody gets in my way and I can't. I've been here for so long and nobody lets me get in the stupid dumb pool. Remember that? Just feeling sorry for himself. Just a big old pity party. You know what Jesus said? Jesus interrupts him and says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And that is when the guy was like, seriously? And he got up and he picked up his mat and he walked out of there. And you know what? Jesus comes to us when we need that tough love. He comes to us and he says, I, do you want to get well? 
Do you want to stop being a victim and start being a victor? Are you ready to hear? Get up and let's go. Let's get out of here. Hey, you know what? You got that addiction. Let's walk away from it. Hey, you know what? That bondage you're walking in, let's get out of there. Hey, this dry and thirsty land you've been walking in spiritually, you know what? Let's get out of here. Let's, let's, let's just jump on the camel and let's go because God is with us. And because God is with us, we can do things that we typically couldn't do. But because he's with us, we can do things that nobody can do. We can get up. We can walk. We can Go to the promised land. We can cross the Jordan. We can face our giants. We can walk in that land and say, God is with me. I can get out of this bondage. What is your bondage? Can I, can, can I teach you the Bible real quick? You know, one of the things I think about with Genesis, I have to keep coming back to. Genesis is a book that was originally written to the Israelites. Moses wrote Genesis. And the Israelites were in the wilderness. And Joshua was about to lead the Israelites out of their wilderness into the promised land. Y'all remember that? And they were the first ones to read this story. And you know what this story is telling them collectively? Leave the wilderness. Cross the Jordan. Walk into what God has for you. And that means that you and I can put our story into this. And what's your Laban? And what's your bondage? And what's your Egypt? And what's your Pharaoh? And what's the thing? And hear God say to you directly, let's just get out of here. Let's walk out, man. Let's walk away from all that old life, all those old ways, all that old uh, attitudes, all those false gods that didn't do anything for us, all that societal explanation of life that's just a bunch of uh, poppycock and boulder dash. Let's get out of that, man, and let's walk in something new. I am with you. Return to the land of your fathers. Return to the idea and the kingdom that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was about. Return to the land and the promised land that Jesus fulfilled in his life, in his righteousness, in his death, and his resurrection. Return and come on back and let's do this. Let's get out of this sin. Let's get out of this bondage. I love it. And so we see the change. Verse 4. Check it out. Watch Jacob. New guy. New guy. Love it. I'm ready to be new. Are you ready to be new? Here it is. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field. He's still going to have to carry around that consequence. (laughs) Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but who cares? Yes. But the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God, what a great conjunction, what a great name, God. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock were spotted. If he said, the stripe shall be your wages, then all the flock been striped. Thus God... God is bigger than Laban. God is more powerful than Laban. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes. I saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob. And I said, here I am. Right on, Jacob. You're available to God now. Right on, man. Be available to God. If God speaks, say, here I am. Where do you want me to go? You want me to jump 10 feet in the air, man? You want me to go to China? You want, me to, you want me to run in circles around this church building, God? I'll do it. I'll do it. You want me to believe something I've never believed before? I'll do it. You want me to leave a belief that I believed wrongly before? I'll do it. Here I am. And God said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I've seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel. Where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now rise and go from this land and return to the land of your kindred. You know what God's saying? Jacob, all your little trickeration with the little stick, that little cute thing you did with that stick, that little superstitious thing you did when you laid it down there before those cows so that they would mate spotted. That wasn't sticks, man. That was me that gave you spotted animals. That was me that gave you speckled animals. That was me that was with you that's provided for you. Leave your magic behind and come. And let's you and me do this thing called life. 
You see, we need something more than consequences and emptiness. What we need is number three, we need conviction. He's convicted. You can see his conviction in the fruit of the change of his perspective from breaking sticks apart to saying to his wives, God is with me. God is the one that's going to do this. Not me, not you, not your daddy. It's God. And because God is with me, I'm good. If God be for us, who can be against us? Amen. Let God be true and every man a liar. God is with me. And I love this idea of conviction because it is the thing that comes into our heart from God and it speaks to us and it, and it, brings, it, brings, it brings genuine change. And that's what happened. When I think about conviction, you're like, talk to me a little bit more about conviction. One of the great verses in the Bible on conviction is 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10. Listen to this. It compares a conviction, grief, sorrow. Those are all kind of synonyms in the Bible. And it says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And it's comparing a conviction that comes from the world, which brings shame and death, and irreversible bondage to God's conviction, which brings a sorrow that changes our life, and we have no regret that we went through that sorrow. You know it's God's conviction when it changes you, and when you look back and you go, man, I am glad God brought that conviction. That was the greatest day of my life was when God cut me to the heart and said, leave your stupid, superstitious, manipulating ways behind and come and walk with me. I'm the one that's going to deliver you. That's godly sorrow. Leading to repentance. And you know what you and I have to be open to? is a critical dimension of God's love is discipline. We have to be open to conviction. What's your magic tricks that you've replaced God with? What's your functional saviors? What's the thing you're going to to bring you hope? To bring you dreams? To help you get through that difficult season? What do you run to when you're in trouble? That's your magic sticks. You're trying to get spotted and speckled animals out of your life through magic. And God's like, exchange those magic sticks for a personal relationship with me and a reference for what I have revealed. And I will lead you to a new place. I will take you to the promised land. You're like, how does God, I mean, what's that look like? Like when God, when God brings conviction, like how does that work? And I would say spiritually, I don't want to over-spiritualize anything, but let me just say and give honor to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit of God is the one that brings conviction. Jesus said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit into the world to bring conviction for all unrighteousness. So God the Holy Spirit, one of his main jobs is to bring conviction. But what does he use to bring conviction? And these aren't the only three things, but let me give you a few things really quick, all right? Because you need to go to these things so you can receive some conviction because you're constantly Consequences aren't enough and your emptiness isn't enough. You need a conviction from God directly. Number one, conviction from the Holy Spirit comes through Scripture. Scripture. It says here in Genesis that God said to Jacob, the Lord said. That's revelation. And God is speaking to us, isn't he? And how he speaks and he's in conversation is through this word. That's why, we come, that's why we come to church, frankly. Can I get an amen? We come to hear from God's word. And sometimes when we come to church and we hear a sermon that's out of these verses from the prophets and the apostles, sometimes it encourages us and it lifts us up on a high mountain and brings a, a breezy wind to us and it, it, and it refreshes. But sometimes when we come to church and we, and we sit under the, the, the words of scripture, it takes us to boot camp. Can I get an Amen. And if the preacher's doing his job, which is a week-to-week thing, but then what's going to happen some weeks is you're going to feel God elbowing his way into your life and bringing conviction from these verses being explained to you. 
don't harden your heart, soften your heart under that conviction. Let God bring you back on the path. Some, so many people have told me before, you know, man, when I, when I hear you preach, it's like, it's like you know exactly what I'm going through. I have no clue what you're going through. But God does. And this word is timeless. It's a timely word that is timeless. And when it's unpacked, and we're not at Disney World Church anymore, but we're sitting under revelation then God's going to speak to us like he did Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, like he spoke to Joseph, like he spoke to Moses and David, like he spoke to Haggai, like he spoke to Obadiah. Have you ever seen that book? It's a little one. Have you, like he spoke through the apostles and through Peter and through Jesus, he's going to speak to us. And let Scripture... Amen? I might just turn to... Okay, thank you. The second thing is not only Scripture, but the Holy Spirit brings conviction through our conscience. And God has given us a sensitive conscience as we give it to Him. And sometimes we're in life and we know the difference between right and wrong. And our conscience is like, I don't think that's a good thing. I think that, well, that, that attitude, that word you just said, ooh, that image you just looked at, that, that, that hateful thing, you just, that's not good. And that conscience, it brings conviction, doesn't it? And when we listen to it, now, the more we don't listen to our conscience, the less sensitive it becomes. It begins to be hidden in our own bondage, and it stops telling us what's right and wrong. So we've got to be sensitive to our conscience so that it's activated according, under the authority of Scripture. But it's working because the Holy Spirit is working internally through our conscience to tell us what's right and wrong. And a critical dimension of God's love is discipline. Through the Holy Spirit, through the conscience. Scripture, conscience. Here's the third thing, and there's more, but for time. The third way that the Holy Spirit brings conviction is through people. People. Sometimes God will choose to rebuke us, reprove us, correct us through loving friends, family, brothers and sisters in Christ, people who care for God and care for us, and they come into our life and they say, hey, buddy, I love you, and what I'm about to tell you is really difficult. But you ain't right here. You, 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 like, I'm seeing something on the outside of you, and here's where God's world is, and here's where you're at, and I'm seeing it, and I'm saying, dude, you need to get back on the game plan. You don't have to use the word dude if you don't want to, but. And I have to say, now let me give you a warning on this. There's two things I need to tell you under this. Number one, I don't want our church to become a bunch of rebukers on everybody. Can I get an Amen. And the one thing that you've got to do, what you've got to realize is there's proximity. If you are in proximity with a person and God, has give, and God has given you a close enough relationship, then you can come into their life and speak a word of correction by the Holy Spirit. You need to be close enough to that person. A good example is if I go to the mall tomorrow and I take out my credit card and I'm buying a $250 sweater, okay? And I don't know you very well. You probably shouldn't come up to me and say, Pastor Josh, you're a pastor. Do you really have the money to buy that $250 sweater? And I might look at you and go, man, I don't know who you are. But if my wife catches me buying a $250 sweater at the mall and I'm pulling out the credit card, she has every right to say to me, uh, Pastor Josh. What are you doing buying a $250 sweater? Now, if you can apply that principle of proximity, who has God given me the right to speak into? And who is it? I'm not close enough. Even though I'm seeing him from a distance, I'm like, eh, probably need to just give it to Jesus. You're not the Savior. You're not the Messiah. Move on with life. But if God's given you a relationship with them or a role in their life, then speak for them. You know what the problem with the church is? Is we don't speak into each other's lives anymore. Isn't that true? We're so pansified anymore. We don't know how to speak into people's lives. And when we finally do, we live in a culture that's so pansified that people, the only way they can interpret it is like some kind of hate or something. Like, brother, I'm not trying to push you down. I'm trying to pick you up. We need more of that. And so the question for me and for you, here's the other warning with this idea of 
being convicted through people. Do you have people that you've given permission to come into your life and speak truth to? Have you, do you have somebody, a mentor that's going to speak scripture, a, a man or a woman that's going to say, I stand for Jesus and for you, and I, you give them permission. Man, if you got something to say to me, please say it. Please help me because I don't see myself as others see me. I don't have enough self-awareness all the time to know when I'm wrong, and I need people in my life who speak into my life. Do you have people like that? Because if you don't, you need somebody. Believe me. I, I need people. <laughs> Critical dimension of God's love is his discipline, and it comes through conviction, scripture, conscience, people. Say, man, what, when, I, when I am convicted by God, I mean, can you just give me some things that I need to do? I mean, I'm under conviction right now. What do I do? I'm feeling it right now. And let me just take you back quickly to, to Genesis 31, and look at verse 13. I love this verse. Oh, my goodness, it's the best verse of the whole passage. And God says, for your edification, I'm going to read it again. He says, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise and go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. You know what he's doing? He's reminding Jacob of his salvation. Remember Jacob's ladder and the angels descending and, and, and ascending, and he was asleep, and God revealed himself. And, and Jacob named that place Bethel, which means house of God. And God is reminding him of that gospel of his salvation. He's reminding him of that pillow that got turned into a, a, a pillar, of that pillar that he anointed with oil. For you and I, we are allowed to, we are invited by Scripture to see Christ in the gospel. Christ is the anointed one. His work is the cross. And God is saying, when you feel conviction, what you have to do It's not begin to walk in works righteousness, but come back to the cross and remember that Jesus died for your sin, that you are loved by God, anoint Christ again in your life. You are the anointed one. You are the Savior. You are the deliverer. I remember that what makes me right with God is not my works, but your work. I remember that good news. Man, that saves us because you know what? Without that gospel of grace and forgiveness, God's discipline would be a far too heavy weight to carry, wouldn't it? It'd be too hard. We'd be burned out. We would walk away from the church forever after a while. But when we remember the cross and we remember grace, we are transformed by it. That verse reminds me of Jesus when he rebuked. Everybody say rebuked. Our Lord, our Savior, the Lamb of God has teeth. Amen. And he says to the church in Revelation, the church of Ephesus, a group of people who could pass any seminary test. They knew all their theology. They knew everything. They could pass any spiritual exam. But what had they lost? They had lost their love for God. They had lost their first passion. The the priority of satisfaction in God they had lost. And Jesus comes and he rebukes them. And here's what he says to them in Revelation 2 verse 4. Jesus says, but I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. You know, religion won't let us have that kind of love. Religion won't allow us to be passionate for God. To have a warm relationship with God. But Jesus comes and says, I care about your satisfaction. I care about your passion. I care about the warmth of your worship. And you've got all these Bible verses down. You've learned all this Bible, but you don't love me like you did at first. You, you've, you're so far gone from, that, from Bethel, from, from that, that, that ladder where, where, where God came down and met you. You're so far away from that moment. And Jesus tells these believers in verse 5, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. He's literally telling this church, I will shut the church doors. You won't be a church anymore unless you come back to this warmth. That's the same thing God's telling Jacob. He's telling him three things. Here's three things I want you to do right now. When you're under conviction, three things. Number one, remember the gospel. Remember from where you have fallen. Remember that place of brokenness when God 
gave you his grace and his love. Don't forget that. Remember. Secondly, repent. And do the things you did at first. You know what he's saying? He's like, you've walked away from that gospel. You've begun to walk in some sinful ways. Functional saviors, turn away. Repent means 180 degree turn. Turning away. Step away and back in a new direction. And go back to what you did at first when you first met Jesus. What would you do? What songs did you sing? How did you pray? Remember that childlike faith? My earliest prayers had so many dudes in them. Dude, God, I love you, dude. God loved that childlike faith. And you know what happens to me as a pastor and as a follower of Jesus? I get too sophisticated. I get too self-important. I start... Yeah, I know some Bible. I know Hebrew. I know Greek. I get to preach every week. You know what happens to pastors and to followers and to churchgoers? We become too self-important. And Jesus is saying, repent and be like you were at first. A humble kid. A humble kid. I remember those prayers. And I would say, God, if you don't do this, I will not make it. I am in high school, dude. I am surrounded by evil. And if you don't get me through Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, man, I will fall. I will fall into sin. I, and I just had to become like a little kid. And I'd go to high school and I'd be like, I'm just a kid. In the presence of Jesus, repent and do what you did at first and then finally return. Come on back. Come on back to church. Come on back and sing. God still loves the light is on. Let's come on back to the promised land. Sometimes we get away, we can always come back. Sometimes we start the race and God gives us a new starting line so we can begin again. Run that race again. Grace gives us room to keep coming back, keep returning, keep going back to the promised land. Sometimes you'll find yourself, it's like when you go out to the ocean, you know, and that current takes you out. Pastor Down- I saw Pastor Downing somewhere this morning. He's back from the ocean. Hallelujah. He knows about this. He was at the ocean. That ocean takes you out. That current takes you out. And you don't realize the current takes you out. And you look back and there's the shore. And you're like, I am further from the shore than I thought. Don't panic when that happens spiritually. Just come on back. Just start swimming back. God will get you back. Come back. And let's worship him together. Let's celebrate the gospel. What we're going to do with this communion meal, holy communion, we're going to remember, we're going to repent, and we're going to return. So let's pray as we prepare. God, you know how much I love all of scripture, but I really, really love Genesis. I love these broken guys. I love Jacob. I'm grateful that you are honest about your people. You didn't write us a book with perfect saints or people who spiritually always had it together. You wrote us a book about men and women that you loved who are just like us. We are walking in this world with consequences, carrying burdens and emptiness. But we're grateful for your conviction. We're grateful that you unload that load and you take captivity captive and you call us to come back. Help us to do that rightly today.